Can you describe yourself in three words? I'd say angry. And I think anger is actually a really important driving force in a world which needs change. Um, I'd say I'm inquisitive. I'm not willing to take things for granted at face value and want to question them. And I'd say I'm optimistic, which I think is a quality of anybody who has political ideals. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Global Health Lives podcast. I'm Dilan Devakumar, and today I'm with Dr. Ariane Chavezi, a senior lecturer in ethics in Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Ariane is an astrophysicist and philosopher now working in global health. Ariane, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So what I found really fascinating about your career is just the range of things you worked on doing an undergraduate and master's degree in astrophysics, then another master's and a PhD in the philosophy of physics. And now you apply your critical mind to a range of global health issues uh, like migration, abortion, female genital cutting, genomics. And I, I like to think that I have range, but frankly, I'm super specialized compared to you. But what I'm interested in is how you made those transitions and what it is you can bring to global health topics from the philosophy and uh, physics backgrounds that you've worked on. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's the same sort of force that's led me through each of those disciplines, actually. So I got into physics because I was always extremely um, interested in how the world works and wanted to get to the bottom of things. And physics seems to me still to be the bottom of things, as it were, right? Mm -hmm. It gets right to the heart of the matter. Um, and so I was very curious about the world around me and physics seemed like the right way to answer those questions. Um, once I was in the world of physics, it seemed to me that philosophy was maybe a better way to answer even the same questions, which led me towards philosophy of physics. So asking very fundamental questions, um, but using more conceptual tools rather than necessarily uh, just mathematical ones. And then once I'd sort of picked up a whole new toolkit, it then seemed to me that there were so many other things in the world that I needed to get to the bottom of and that I now mm -hmm. had the ability mm -hmm. um, to be able to do so. And that sort of led me in a kind of meandering path through all sorts of concepts and ideas. So I got into thinking about gender and race through a philosophical lens and then started thinking also about health, which I think is just so fundamental to our experience as human beings. Um, the way that it feels to be a human being um, mm -hmm. is so linked to health. Um, and there are so many questions that are unanswered, patterns that are under-analyzed. And so one of the things that I come back to again and again with my students is looking at maps of life expectancy. The map looks exactly how you would expect it to look. The pattern is the same and it's been the same for many decades. And that strikes me as not being so dissimilar to an observation we might make in physics. You know, patterns of global health inequality are exactly like that. So going Back a step. Uh, in an article I recently read about you, you describe yourself as a Kurdish-British writer. You were born to a Kurdish-Iranian father and British mother, both of whom are teachers. And you have three sisters, all a similar age to yourself. Uh, what was it like growing up in this family in the northwest of England? Yes, yeah, so I grew up 
in a house uh, with my parents as two teachers um, and with my three sisters around. Um, and it was a house full of books. It was a house full of art. Um, it was a place where there were political discussions going on all the time. My father is from the Middle East. Um, he's somebody who has a very acute awareness of global politics. Um, and so those sorts of conversations were always going on. My mother is very, very literary and reads a lot. And so was constantly passing on books to all of us. Um, and so it was just a very dynamic household. Um, there was lots going on. And it was a great place to be learning in a in a relatively unstructured way. Um, it was sort of always a bit wild and noisy. And I think in that environment, me and my sisters all really, really prospered. But there was also an awareness always of mixedness. Obviously, growing up in a dual heritage household and living in, a, in Accrington, which was a very divided place and a place where racism was very sort of overt, mm. you know, that was extremely formative for me in terms of how I thought about myself. I couldn't avoid thinking about race from quite an early age. Um, and, you know, I can recall being in the playground when I was perhaps about six or seven and just arriving into the playground and it being split and the white children standing um, on one side um, and the children of colour, um, who were mostly uh, Pakistani children, standing on the other side. Um, and uh, one of the girls... Uh, who stood on the on the side of the Pakistani children grabbing my hand and pulling me over and saying you're with us you know and um, because of course my father mm -hmm. um, is a person of color and feeling as though I was categorized by the world in a particular way and that those categories mattered in some way that at that age felt quite scary I mean still feels quite scary but it was I was confronted with that whether I whether I wanted to be or not. It was something I had mm. to think about mm. and my sisters had to think about when we were growing up. And I remember as a child, so I grew up in southeast of England and yeah, there there were different groups, but we were young children, so everyone played with each other. And then we moved to North Wales and almost entirely white um society. Um and there there weren't any groups. It it was English and Welsh predominantly mm. and I was the only person who was different um and and I found that was very different because I wasn't seen as part of a group um so from there you moved to South End to Essex um a predominantly white working class neighborhood so can you tell us how you then developed your interest in science and physics in particular at this early age and and some of the challenges you faced of being quite academically minded in a non-academic school yeah. So Southend was a very, remains a very white place. Um, and that came with its own challenges um, in that I was suddenly confronted with different forms of racism. Um, and, and the time that we arrived there, I suppose, coincided with the arrival or the resettlement of many um, Kosovan refugees at that time. Um, and so racist utterances at school were very common. So that sort of followed us um, to some extent that we would we were still kind of exposed to that. Um, I was very interested in science, as you say. My interest in physics began when I was about eight years old or something like that, uh, when my father 
talk to me about gravity and sort of explain to me how gravity worked a little bit. And I suppose it was just this realization that there was this thing happening all around us all the time, the force of gravity, um, and that there was this whole backstory to it. People were studying it and there were things we didn't know about it. Um, and I became very, very interested um, in physics specifically. The school that I went to was a state school, a comprehensive school, and it was in the middle of a very poor area. Um, and many of the children who I studied alongside came from families where there were all sorts of social issues um, that they were dealing with. And so academic achievement was not a priority in many cases. There were more immediate needs that needed to be mm. met. The teachers were aware of that. The school was not really set up to be focusing on academic achievement, but a lot of it was instead behavior management, for example. So for me, that was quite a strange environment in which to be learning. And from a very early age, I sort of realized that if I was going to meet my own goals and if I was going to enjoy learning, I was going to be doing it on my own um, and, you know, kind of got through school and got the grades that I needed. Um, and my my goal at that age was, you know, to go and study physics at the best place to study physics, which was Cambridge University. Um, and so that was what I was working towards. And uh, I was able to achieve that, though obviously it was a bit of a struggle coming from the sort of school that I came from. Um, but I think I, I still look back and think I'm glad that's where I studied. I'm glad that's where I had so many kind of formative life experiences Um because I think it's formed my politics. Mm. Um, but it's also formed me academically to have had to sort of train myself. And so that next step you made was to study physics in Cambridge. And what was it like when you got there? Was it what you were expecting? Not at all, no. I think I had very romantic notions of what Cambridge would be like. I thought that I would be walking into a place where everyone would be kind of really broad intellectual and would would be interested in all mm. sorts of things and people obviously were very focused on the subject that they had chosen fair enough um it was me that had the unrealistic expectations um but also people were largely not from the same sort of background that I had come from um there were a lot of students who were privately educated um who had never known the sort of people who had been the only people I had ever known um and so it was a little bit of a culture shock in that regard and I think one of the things that helped me through that was finding a political group to work with. I'd called myself a socialist since I was about 13 when I read Robert Tressel's The Ragged Trouser Philanthropists. And, you know, that was quite a big part of my life alongside the science that I was studying. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was quite grounding to find a group to work with. But I think I still felt throughout my time at Cambridge that I was something of an outsider. And I think class had a lot to do with that. So from there, you made the jump to philosophy of physics. Can you start by telling me what philosophy of physics is and then what you did your PhD on? So philosophy of physics is the study of the more conceptual ideas within physics. So physicists will use, for example, a conception of time in order to do their physics. So time, T, will be present mm. in many physics equations. Whereas a philosopher of physics will want to know what time is, right? And so they'll start digging in on that question. Philosophers almost have the luxury of pausing and reflecting upon some of the 
concepts that physicists use. And so for me, this was a very attractive prospect um, because I was not such a practically minded physicist. I was quite theoretical and I enjoyed the maths side of it, but I really, really did enjoy the conceptual side of it, the big questions that sort of led me into it in the first place. My PhD um, looked at the direction of time. And what I was interested in is the fact that time goes only in one direction, as, as far as we can tell. And that has to do with something called the second law of thermodynamics, which dictates that um, a quantity called entropy increases over time, which you can kind of summarize by saying disorder increases with time. So I was interested in asking, why is that the case in our universe? So in a 10 second soundbite, why, why does it occur in our universe? Yeah, good question. Um, because it was very low to start with is the short answer. So we live in a universe where entropy was very, very low to begin with. And as to why that's the case, we don't know. But one thing that is for sure is if it hadn't been, we couldn't have existed. So we wouldn't be asking the question. <laughs> Right. So the fact that we're here to ask the question already requires that we're in the sort of universe that would give us enough of a budget for entropy increase that life could actually develop. Can you tell me a little bit more about becoming more politically active and how this links to the, the three ways that you described yourself at the start? My politics goes right back to my early teens and while I was a student was involved in various different actions. Um my politics is one of, I suppose, economically, I describe myself as a communist. And I think that the global economic system and the sort of assumptions on which it's premised is the cause of all sorts of problems, including the problems that we see in global health. Um, mm. And in my teaching, I always go back to the economics in order to try to get to the bottom of why we're in such a mess, essentially. Um, and so, you know, my my anger in a way can be traced to that, what I consider to just be a terrible way of organising things in some way, right? It's just a, a frustration mm. um, that the world is, is put together in a way that does not make sense and does not get the best out of people and does not prioritise the sorts of things which are clearly important to all of us. Um, and so we live in a world in which very few of us are able to flourish, and a lot of that has to do with the particular economic system and the, the boxes it forces us into. And so I think that the fact that I am an inquisitive person, as I said at the start, means that I'm less willing, perhaps, than an average person to take all that for granted. And so when I'm told things have to work in a particular way, my first impulse is to ask why um, and to try to figure out if things could be different and how they might be different. Um, and I think that is why I describe myself as an optimistic person, actually, um, despite being somebody who can have quite a negative view of the world we live in at the moment. I am hopeful about a future that looks different to um, the present. Um, and I often come back to that Gramsci quote, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I think that we have to be hopeful. There's too much riding on it. Um, you know, we really do have to fight for something that's better and believe that it is possible because, you know, there's too much at stake for us to lose or to admit defeat. And this has so many 
direct health consequences in in, in all the sort of fields of health and, and medicine. And, and that's where taking away from the clinical interaction, and then you look at all these causes of ill health. We myself look at child health predominantly, but in every life stage. So was that one of your main drivers for moving into global health? And, and how did you make that next step? Yeah, I think when I had got my ph philosophical training, I felt able to apply that to a broader range of topics. And I started to feel as though there was the possibility to bring together my political anger and my political principles and my philosophical training. And that felt great because before I had kept my intellectual interests and my political interests apart, but it felt possible to bring them together. And that, that felt right and good. And it made everything a lot easier, actually. It was almost like the wind in my sails thereafter. Um, and that was what led me towards working on topics in global health. They were things that made me angry. So it's interesting you talk about anger, and I, I've always wondered what what is it that leads me to work on the topics I work on, and I've never been really sure because I, ha I haven't had a, a burning desire to do one thing. But I, I remember it was global health was described once as injustice, mm. and and then I thought that's okay, that's something that links work on racism or child marriage or child nutrition or air pollution and all these very different topics. But th there's something wrong about all of them that children or people in general should suffer these consequences from mm. things that shouldn't be the way that they are. Um, can, I, can I press you a little bit more on your work on racism and xenophobia towards migrants? So th th these are topics that I've read your work on and watched you lecture on as well. Um, and from what you've said before, this links back to some of the events in your childhood and experiences mm. you've had. Um, can you just describe some of the work you've done on, on these topics? Yeah, so I've always felt that in broader discussions about racism, migrants, and in particular undocumented migrants or irregular migrants, often get sidelined. And there is obviously a tremendous amount of hostility in the UK and in many other countries um, towards migrants. And so in some ways, they are the most urgent social group in terms of interventions being needed to actually, you know, amplify their voices and to make sure that their needs are on the agenda. Um, and so that for me has always felt very important. I have done various bits of work that relate to the health needs of um, undocumented migrants uh, primarily, but migrants more generally, and I've looked at the National Health Service in this regard. So the National Health Service, um, one of the things you often see in the tabloid newspapers is, oh, it's the National Health Service, not the International Health Service, right? Which is a way of saying, you know, only certain people should be allowed to use it. And of course, it's a nonsense statement, because the National Health Service, you know, something like 40% of its employees are um, migrants. So it really is the International Health Service mm -hmm. in some very basic sense. Um, but of course, there's more to say than that. And one, some of the work that I've done is to look at the fact that the National Health Service poaches health workers from Global South regions very happily and very intentionally um, because it's cheaper than training people here. 
Um, you take somebody, they're ready trained, their training was paid for by the taxpayers or the government or, of, of another country. And you don't really fund any of that. And so you almost get them for free, ready to go. Um, so that's one side of, of the kind of work that I've done. And then the other side of the work that I've done is looking at the ways in which the NHS is increasingly denying health access to anyone who is not what is called ordinarily resident within the UK, right? And so you've got these two things in parallel, and they've often been discussed as quite separate topics. And what I've done in my work is to actually fold them into the same narrative. How could it be okay to poach these health workers on the one hand, and then deny health access to other migrants on the other? And so I've looked at it through the lens of uh, moral cosmopolitanism, which is this idea that our moral calculations and decision making should have no weight uh, applied to borders. So we shouldn't think about where somebody is from, we should treat mm. them as equally um, worthy of moral attention, regardless of, of their particular origins. But my argument is that it's actually very difficult to do anything about brain drain, which constitutes a tremendous extraction of value, constitutes an extraction of wealth from the global south to the global north. And my thinking is that one solution to this very difficult problem is to ensure that all migrants in the UK, regardless of what their documentation might be, whatever their status might be, should be permitted to use the NHS for free. And that's one of the ways, one of a, a sort of general way of making up for what we are taking, um, what the NHS takes from the global south done a little bit of work on undocumented migrant children in the UK. And, you know, as you say, so, so migrants often do very well, mm -hmm. but some of the people who do worse are the undocumented group, um, often labelled as illegal migrants, and particularly for children. So many countries give free access to healthcare for children, regardless of their documentation, but the UK doesn't. Mm. And that's part of this whole hostile environment towards migrants. So we're trying to openly stop people from coming here and yeah. then we're putting groups of children at disadvantage who can't access healthcare in hospitals or whose parents are worried about it rightfully so and that seems so wrong frankly for, for trivial amounts of money they make these stances but i think they're political gestures i, I don't think it's mm. much more than that no i think you're absolutely right and um you know, in some of my other work, I've actually tried to crunch the numbers on this um, and show just how trivial um, they are. I mean, frankly, even if it did cost the NHS something quite substantial in order to provide healthcare um, to everybody who needed it, I still think we should, right? Mm -hmm. But the point is, it doesn't. Um, and what all the figures seem to show is that the additional bureaucracy of working out who is chargeable and making sure they get charged, employing yeah. people whose job it is to charge people, all of that comes to much more than what is actually then recovered by charging them. So I think you're absolutely right. It is ideological. This is a way of communicating that people are not welcome, of creating the hostile environment, right? It's not about economic concerns. And it's so badly done. Uh, mm. the, the ways that people are picked out who might be chargeable is often just based on your name. I, I remember mm. getting a letter for my son inquiring whether we should have to pay for his medical expenses. 
No, absolutely. And it encourages racial profiling, of course. It sort of forces healthcare practitioners towards that. Um, and, you know, for many of them, it, it's a very morally distressing situation, I think, for healthcare workers, because they're being put in a situation where they're being asked to ensure that people are charged, and to kind of make decisions about who they think is maybe chargeable and who is not. Um, and that's a very awkward position to put somebody in. Um, and it clearly creates an institutional racism. So linked to these kind of power dynamics that we've talked about. Um, so other aspects of your work has been on abortion and on the global gag rule. Um, can you describe what the global gag rule is and then just how it's become such a political football? Yeah, so the global gag rule, um, its official name um, was the Mexico City policy. Um, so it's a policy that was introduced at a conference in Mexico City um, by Ronald Reagan. Um, and what it did at that time was to ensure that any organization that accepted US federal funds for family planning um, would have to certify that it would not perform or recommend or discuss abortions. Um, and so that came into force and then was taken away again um, by Clinton, um, put back again by Bush, taken away again by Obama, put back again by Trump and extended so that it no longer applied only to family planning funding, but to all global health funding coming from the United States, which was an $8.8 billion pot. So if you were an organization in the global south, in receipt of US funds, you had to certify that you would not perform or actively encourage abortion in any way. And that's including funds that you may have taken from anywhere else as well for your abortion care. If you were taking any US money, you couldn't perform abortions using any of your funds. And so that was enforced for the whole of you know four years of Trump's presidency. And what it has meant is that abortion services, but also essential health services more generally, have been decimated in many global South um, contexts. Um, and that damage, although Biden has now reversed that policy, the damage will obviously have a very long tail. And more than that, the fact that this policy can be reintroduced and will be by any future Republican US um, administration, the fact that it's there is just so worrying because what it's doing is exploiting the dependence of Global South populations on Global North aid, essentially. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact mm -hmm. that any population relies upon handouts from the global north is already extremely telling about the, the mess the world is mm -hmm. in and just how troubling the state of global health is. But the idea that the United States or any other state or institution would use that dependence to take its own domestic moral fault lines and force them onto countries that are very distant mm. onto people who are extremely vulnerable. I mean, it's it's really extremely concerning. It also strikes me about the power of the voters in swing states in the US. And it's not even all the voters. It's the swing voters in the swing states. So the small number of people in places like Ohio that 
their vote matters so much to other people around the world. And it's unfair on them because, you know, they would be voting on their own domestic issues, but it gets extrapolated in these ways to affect mm. millions of people around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is imperialism, right? This is what imperialism means, is that you can force your values um, onto uh, those who have no power to influence your democracy. So the people who are being affected by the global gag rule have no way of making US politicians accountable, have no way of voting for something different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, as I say, it is imperialism. And I think it's a sign that some of those major features of colonialism that we tend to think of as belonging to the distant past are still alive and well in the present. And we see them um, in the global health landscape. I mean, on that topic, could you talk a little bit about neglected tropical diseases and your kind of conceptualization of these? So these are diseases like dengue, schistosomiasis, uh, Chagas disease. Um, but, but can you talk about some of the work you've done on these diseases? Yeah. So I first encountered neglected tropical diseases when I started my current job, which is at the Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Um, So I joined this medical community and was involved in all these interesting conversations um, with lots of clinicians and researchers. So neglected tropical diseases are usually not diseases which are easily transmitted between humans. And so they don't tend to pose the same global health security risk that some other diseases do. They do not have scientific properties in common for the most part. They're quite a kind of medley. And so what's uniting them is the fact that they are neglected rather than anything that is biologically the case about every single one of them. But the term bothered me, um, this idea that there's a group of diseases that are just neglected and neglected is part of the terminology and an accepted part of the terminology just struck me immediately as a moral philosopher as really, really worrying and pointing to something potentially very interesting. You just listed some of the diseases that fall within that category. Um, What draws them together is that they are neglected from the perspective of funding and research. And so what I then did is obviously look at the geographical distribution which is across the global south. These are diseases which primarily affect global south populations. They're often described as diseases of the bottom billion. And they are neglected. They are ignored. They are treated um, as a sort of low priority, even though they are enormously disabling to you know, large numbers of people. Um, and so I just started to think quite carefully Um, about what it meant for a disease to be neglected, but also what it meant for a disease to be tropical. Um, It's pointing to a particular set of regions. um, And it's implying, at least at face value, that the fact that these diseases occur in, in those world regions has something to do with them being tropical regions, which makes it sound as though the climate is the determining factor. And I, in my work on this, I've tried to kind of move away from that environmental determinism and point out that climate's not the issue here. Some of these diseases were prevalent in global north populations. Um, So podoconiosis, for example, which is an elected tropical disease, which causes um, swelling of the lower extremities um, when people walk barefoot on red clay volcanic soils. Um, Well, podoconiosis was once 
upon a time observed in Scotland, right? Um, but widespread shoe wearing practices mm-hmm. have meant that it's now limited to regions where people cannot afford um for the most part, to wear shoes. So this is not a question of climate for many of these diseases. It is a question of poverty. And I just think that unless we do the work when we talk about neglected tropical diseases of digging in a little bit more on what we mean by tropical, digging in a little bit more about what the word neglected is doing there and what it's telling us, I think unless we do that work, we're apt to just take it at face value as a group of diseases like any other. Whereas I think there's a lot more to learn um, when we start zooming in and, and questioning some of that vocabulary. Yeah, I mean, they they don't occur in rich tropical countries. So. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you. And outside of work, you're a keen runner, keen footballer, and, and very much into reading literature. And can you tell me how these um, different hobbies are important in your life? Yeah, so I run every single day. And for me, it's really important to just gathering my thoughts, getting some time outdoors, getting some light on me. As somebody who sits in front of a computer all day long, I think it is really important to have a way of getting away from that Um, and having some time just away from technology as well. Um, So it's quite therapeutic for me running. And I read a lot. Um, I read lots of novels in particular. And that, again, is a form of escapism, I suppose. It takes me away from my everyday work. But I also think there's so much that you can explore in a novel that's morally interesting, actually. And I find myself thinking about this more and more that, obviously, as I say, escapism is one aspect. So it's not supposed to be about work. But I think in some ways the novel is an amazing sort of petri dish almost for exploring how humans behave in extreme and challenging conditions Um, and also getting inside the head of another person, pretty much the best way to do that. So, Ariane, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I could carry on talking about these things for so much longer. Um, I mentioned to someone that I was interviewing you and talked about all the things that you've done and that you worked on. And she said that you sound like a genius and marrying together these such different disciplines. I mean, I suppose it was common in the past historically, um, but now it's so rare and it's really wonderful that you can bring these ideas and learning and experiences to global health and advance global health issues. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to my guest, Ariane Charvesi. This episode was produced by myself and Amarun Uthai Kumar Kumarasamy. The theme song is Paper Stars by Liam Aiden. This is a Global Health Lives podcast. Thank you for listening.